This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Anita Rani and welcome to Woman's Hour from BBC Radio 4. Hello and welcome to Weekend Woman's Hour with me, Anita Rani. As always, we've got a packed show for you today featuring the best of Woman's Hour guests and interviews from the week just gone. Coming up this afternoon, the actor Samantha Morton on being awarded the BAFTA Fellowship. We'll hear from a woman in Alabama on how the Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos have the same rights as children is affecting her and what she does with the frozen embryos she has left over from IVF. While we don't believe they're children, they are important to us. They're potential children, they're potential siblings to our kids, they're hope. And it's not something that you can just dispose of or donate without being completely certain that that's where your heart is. We look at why young people in their early 20s are more likely to be out of work because of ill health than those in their 40s. The comedian, actor and author Andy Osho and her mum Charlotte discuss working together on her mum's memoir, The Jagged Path. But first, the actor Samantha Morton received this year's BAFTA Fellowship, a Lifetime Achievement Award, which recognises an outstanding contribution to film and television. Previous winners include Elizabeth Taylor, Dame Judi Dench, Mira Sayal and Dame Helen Mirren. Samantha's been acting since she was 13 in a huge range of roles. She was Oscar-nominated for a Woody Allen film, starred opposite Tom Cruise in Minority Report and appeared as an iconic villain in The Walking Dead. More recently, she played Zelda Perkins, the real-life former assistant of disgraced Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. Samantha spoke to Emma on Monday and told her about the moment she realised she was receiving the BAFTA Fellowship. I was actually going to see my neighbour Totoro at the Barbican with my family just before Christmas. And uh, yeah, I, I got, as we do, we're addicted to our phones, a lot of us. So my family went to get ice cream at the interval and I checked my emails, which is very silly. But I did and it was there and I thought it was a mistake. I thought they'd made a mistake. And then I emailed back and said, I think this um, this is wrong. Um, and they came back and said, no, this is right. And then I cried. I just had a bit of a, like a hoping that people didn't think I was completely nuts or that I'd had terrible news sitting there at the interval sobbing. <laughs> it's like there weren't many people around me, but, you know. There is that. But what was the what was the reason, do you think, it, it struck you in that way? Well, I talked about it in my speech, and it's recognition. Obviously, recognition for my work felt incredible because as an actor who has been, I think actually my first job was I was 12. It was a talk, write and read educational programme. You know, I've been working pretty much do it, you know, extra work, walk on one, all, I've done every job imaginable pretty much on a film set. And, you know, there's been times when I've had incredible highs and in to- and then there's been times when I've been unemployable due to um, people saying I was difficult to work with. Um, difficult meaning I would say no if somebody wanted me to take my bra off on set because they wanted to see my nipples. Um, difficult because I would challenge the way that a set was being ran at times um, when people were not being treated very well um, or, you know, crew's hours were too long and, you know, all sorts of things like that. So it just felt incredible to think that if you stick to your guns and you stick to your beliefs and I suppose it, it, it turned out all right. 
you know, there were times there when it wasn't OK. On that point about taking your bra off and not showing your nipples, I, I, you know, I presume that was a very real request in a in a set scenario. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. On, on a set in front of the entire crew. Um, also, when I was very young, you know, the, the lovely, lovely costume and hair and makeup girls would give me corn plasters to put on my breasts um, when I was doing sex scenes for Band of Gold because I, I was so frightened and didn't want to, you know, Kay Mella, the incredible writer Kay Mella would write a scene that says, you know, Tracy is in bed with a, a punter or a client. Um, uh, I played a young prostitute, uh, a trafficked child, actually, as we would say now, um, in Band of Gold, a TV show that was uh, in the early 90s on ITV. Very, very successful. Brilliant. And I, I hadn't because I didn't go to drama school and because I wasn't from a certain type of family, family, if you like, I didn't know how to, to speak up for myself. I didn't have anyone being an advocate for me other than the other women who would say, listen, if you put these plasters on your nipples, then they can't show your breasts on television, you know, because everything is down to interpretation. So if the scene is is requiring an int- intimacy, um, it's down to the director of how they're going to shoot that and, and what you do. It, it sounds like you are having to walk align with with not having that background as you say and then still trying to get work all the time and figure out how you could still be you in that space yeah Yeah, and how you navigate relationships on set and when you're playing very vulnerable raw intense characters but also you you have to remember that we we were living in we were working and living in times where it 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 was terrible for for women on film sets and we're not talking about that long we're not talking about that long ago no no and i just felt so incredibly privileged to be have to have a job to be working to not be living in a homeless hostel to not be you know surrounded by dangerous individuals and i felt that i was in a safer environment not every set was like that and i have to really stress that not every set was like that and i love my community i love my job but there were times when it wasn't i just wasn't welcome because of who I am, because of where I'm from. And that was very evident. So to get the fellowship from BAFTA, it's other than my my, my children and, and being in a, in the relationship I'm in is, is possibly the, the most incredible thing that's ever happened to me. I, I, want, I want to come back to a couple of themes about your industry, if I can, and being a yeah. woman. But just, I also thought what was striking in your speech is you, you talked about it and you could have missed it, but you did make a point of saying you have faith. Um, you talked about Absolutely. a belief yeah. in God, which I think in this yeah. country certainly um, doesn't always get spoken about uh, publicly. It's not cool, is it? It's not cool to talk about, you know, faith. Um, but if you were to look at my film, uh, The Unloved, it, it talks about this character who's making her first Holy Communion and her relationship with God. But also it, it's quite complex when you are surrounded by abuse and harm. How do you navigate that and not hate somebody else you know an eye for an eye I I just I never felt um, I mean around the age of 14 I felt absolute anger at the authorities and the people that had harmed me and abused me but prior to that I was just kind of in it and just felt that forgiveness was the best way forward you're talking about abuse within the the care system and how you were looked after growing up oh yeah absolutely neglect beyond from the 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 state um which is still happening today that's why i support article 39 the charity and i support the nspcc that has um they've got a new campaign coming out this week um which is called listen up speak up which is a 10 minute uh, online uh thing you can do where it helps you learn how to 
to it's a training course to see how you can spot signs of abuse in in children so yeah I try and do the best I can but ultimately back then when I was very small yes. and moved from foster home to foster home children's home to children's home um faith and my belief in in something bigger and other than myself and loving other people helped me survive is that why you wanted to talk about believing in god publicly is is that, was that important as part of that message i i think that just kind of came out <laughs> you know that just just happened um and it's everybody's personal journey isn't it whatever faith you you are connected to um whether you just believe in a higher power but something other than yourself that is that is bigger than you that is about a community it's about loving other people um and and also hate doesn't work i i was very angry when i was 14 with everything and it just didn't get me anywhere it, it was the you know the, the the wrong way to use anger i suppose so being so loving other people and believing everybody has a right to be here no matter who you are what you do what you've done um, forgiveness certainly meant I was able to survive and move forward and yes I well know, it just helps. I, I wonder though if now looking at your your journey where you've got to and and where you're from and how your upbringing did shape you and and did you know create certain circumstances for you that sometimes would have been harder and other times may have driven you on as well do you think someone coming from from that sort of background today could make it to the BAFTA fellowship could make it to where you are have things got got better or worse in that respect they've got worse it, it depends which which road we're talking about so education wise we do know that the past 14 years successive governments have decimated um, the arts in regards to schools, drama teachers, libraries, books, you know, books in school. And I was privileged enough to, even though I went to state school, there were books available all the time. A teacher wheeled in a big telly and played as Kez, the film. Um, I had great drama teachers at school. That's Ken Loach's, um, Ken Loach's film. Yes, Ken Loach's film, Kez, yeah. Yes. Um, and, you know, it was it was drama was really, really highly regarded at, at my school, Westbridge for Comprehensive. So it you know, I was really lucky. I'm not sure that most children, whether you are looked after or just at a state school now, get that opportunity to to kind of learn about, you know, drama. I, I just wanted to come to the fact that you having played Zelda Perkins, who I've interviewed before, actually, um, the, the former mm. assistant to uh, Harvey Weinstein, who's, of course, head of Miramax, um, and one of the, the many women speaking to the New York Times journalists. Um, you also had an encounter with Weinstein, not of a sexual nature, but of the threat of being blacklisted. Um, what, what, what is your view of that now and, and how do you remember that? It's interesting because at the time I didn't realise I had been, if you like, my name crossed off his list. He was a very, he is still a very powerful, very, very talented producer. And I really, really wanted to work for Miramax as a young person. I, I went in and met them and it was all very happy. And then I was offered a particular film that I didn't want to do. And so I turned it down and I was told, you don't say no to Harvey then every single time I was either wanted by a director or by anybody else within his company, he would just say no. He would then acquire films that I was part of and uh, contrary to my contract, he would try and get my name off the cover or move my face out of the, you know, the when you have DVDs back in the day. There was all sorts of things that Miramax did, but I, I kind of didn't realise it at the time and it was only in hindsight that I went through certainly my relationship with Terry Gilliam and what happened there and 
which I've spoken about publicly, it was written about in a book, and then someone pointed it out to me that Terry had tried to cast me in a movie, and Harvey basically went above and beyond to make sure I wasn't cast in that movie. To be fair to Harvey, it was his film. He's a producer, and if he doesn't want someone in the role, that's that's his right. This, However, this is all because you, was, you you said no to a project. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. After I did a film called Under the Skin, uh, many many years ago, there was a huge amount of interest in me in America and in Hollywood, and I moved to New York and I was doing independent cinema in New York, which was amazing. And yeah, there was a there was a requirement for me to go and do certain parts, which I just didn't want to do. And back then, you you kind of you arrived at a studio and you were kind of part of their stable, if that made sense. You didn't you weren't under like a three picture deal all the time or things like that. But it, you you know if you impressed them and you did one film for them and that did all right, you know then you were kind of in there. You were in their stable. But I would look at a role and if I didn't feel that I could was challenging enough or if I thought it was misogynistic or it was just horrible kind of nineties. Which, yeah, you know, it, it, I'd be like, must, no, I don't want to do this. But it must be just so, I don't know what the word is for it, but that something to look back and realise that now and, and see all those patterns and have that well, understanding also, with, with the knowledge of what he's he's then yeah, been in court wasn't for. Just, yeah, it wasn't just Harvey. You've got to remember, it's not just Harvey. That we, there was a huge amount of other individuals that behaved atrociously really up until the mid-2000s. I was working alongside men who their behaviour was absolutely unprofessional and probably wouldn't wouldn't happen today, but certainly was still happening right up until the, the Harvey Weinstein scandal came out. Many, many individuals. I was fired from one movie because I wouldn't go to dinner with the studio execs wearing a skirt. There you go. I mean, you say hopefully it isn't <laughs> happening today, but but that's no, the thing. I, I we, don't we, think we, so in the same well, way. Well, yes, but you, I suppose sometimes we history's being written as we speak, so you, you sometimes mm. don't know where things are. But Samantha, sorry, yeah. were, were you about to add a final thing there? I just wanted to say that there was there's there was also lots of enablers. You know, you've got to remember a lot of agents out there knew what was happening and didn't speak up. So that we have spoken up now. Hopefully, every single aspect of our industry has had a good hard look at every aspect of how they do business. And moving forward, because of people like Zelda Perkins, things are changing. And and with BAFTA, who have, we have to remember is an arts charity, recognising someone like me, I take that honour incredibly seriously. And I'm grateful and moving forward that we, we will have change. We will see positive change. The wonderful Samantha Morton speaking to Emma. Now, you may have heard the news that Alabama's Supreme Court ruled earlier this month that frozen embryos have the same rights as children. It was a controversial decision, especially in the build-up to the presidential election. Meanwhile, France is preparing to enshrine abortion as a constitutional right as early as next week, where lawmakers argued that it was necessary as abortion rights are being rolled back in the US and other European countries, such as Hungary and Poland. Discussion about abortion is a topic that elicits strong feelings on all sides. But what will this Alabama ruling mean for women in the US? We'll hear shortly from one woman in Alabama about her experience in the state. She's been through IVF treatment and still has three embryos frozen at a local fertility clinic. Jenny Kleeman spoke to the lawyer Eric Rubel, who specialises in fertility law. She asked him if this Alabama ruling was a consequence of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. It is absolutely an outgrowth of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, largely because Alabama was one of those states that had a trigger law. And the trigger law was that once Roe v. Wade was overturned, 
Alabama now had their own um, law on abortion, and it was much more stringent. In addition, some states had definitions of life, and those definitions now are coming into play with, with the civil litigations. The determination of life could be as early as the fertilization of an egg um, with a sperm, and that's what we're seeing now. So this ruling is the consequence of of a civil case. Explain what happened there, because it's quite an extraordinary story. There was an accident in a a fertility clinic. Yes. So there was a fertility clinic in a hospital. And uh, there are three sets of plaintiffs who are couples who had gone through IVF at the clinic and their embryos were stored in the cryopreservation unit in a separate area of of the clinic. Someone from the hospital, a patient, was managed to get into the um, cryopreservation unit, opened it, and took out the vials, which are, you know, at a temperature of uh, way below zero, which when you grab it, it, it's it's, um, painful. The person dropped uh, several vials of the embryos, and, and that was the end of those embryos. So the three sets of plaintiffs sued the fertility clinic. And one of their claims was not just the loss of property, which would be the normal um, claim and negligence, but also this 1872 statute of a wrongful death of a minor. And that is a child. So this ruling by coming to the conclusion that in this particular case, destroying these embryos was the wrongful death of a minor. Now, all embryos in Alabama are defined as as minors. Correct. All embryos, whatever state they're in, are now a child. And um, it's really quite fascinating when you read the decision, the majority opinion, because the writing is on the wall in the first page of this decision, where it says... um, the question is whether is is the death of an embryo kept in a cryogenic nursery. I've never heard the word cryogenic nursery. I mean, once you saw those few words together, you knew where the court was going in its decision. There was some quite extraordinary wording from the court. Uh, in Alabama, the, the chief justice Parker, he invoked the Bible in explaining his decision. I mean, what do you think about that as a lawyer? How common is that in the U.S.? Um, in my close to 30 years of practice, I've never seen the Bible quoted as a legal authority um, in which to base a decision, especially in a in a civil complaint case. He goes back to as far as Aquinas and, and um, really just, you know, is quoting at length um, the Ten Commandments and etc. So it it gives you a perspective of of where they're coming from and where this judge was coming from. And you know, precedent and law really the civil law the 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 law of the states really had nothing to do with his his decision. So what does this decision mean practically for clinics and for their patients? Well, we saw what it means for the clinics. They've shut down. They won't, um, you know, continue doing procedures, creating embryos. Some of those clinics said that they would do some, um, you know, egg uh, retrievals, but the clinics don't want to take the risk of 
having these lawsuits. And so they've stopped the IVF process um, until such time as, as they can go forward safely. I think what you'll also see is intended parents who have created embryos taking their embryos out of the state. I mean, that's what they should do is remove them to, to safeguard them. Well, let's hear now from somebody who plans to do just that. Uh, I have been speaking to Christia Rumbly, who has three frozen embryos at a fertility clinic in Alabama. I started by asking why she decided to have IVF treatment in the first place. We had our first son with no issue at all. And so we were quite surprised to find that we could not get pregnant again after that. So we, um, after a year of trying, we went to a specialist we tried a bunch of different methods, um, you know, different medications, IUIs. Nothing was successful. And so we, after about a year of that, we eventually decided to try IVF. It seemed our, our best course of action. It's an expensive process. And so we knew we only had one shot at it. And we, um, we were fortunate enough to get six healthy embryos. And we transferred two immediately and both worked, which we were not expecting, but we were happy. And we got twins from that. A few years later, we, we, we froze all of the, the embryos at that time. And a few years later, we thawed one and had another one. And now we almost we have an almost two-year-old. So you have four children now. Yes, four boys. And three embryos still in, yes. in storage. And, and how long mm. have they been frozen there? Um, about eight years. So yes. what was your reaction when Alabama Supreme Court ruled that they were going to treat frozen embryos as unborn living children? I wasn't surprised. Since Roe was overturned, we had been watching for le- legislative action to come from the state. So we already had a plan in place uh, to move our embryos in that event, um, which can be a little risky to move them. It can be expensive. I love the clinic I'm at. It's not something I necessarily wanted to do. But we thought we would have some time once they you know, presented a bill for it. So when they overturned the court case, that caught us by surprise. We weren't expecting that at all. So I was angry, mostly at the way they did it, and frustrated and a little bit panicked because we didn't have the time we thought we would have. So spell it out for our listeners. What does this actually mean for you in practical terms? I'm fortunate enough that we're finished growing our family. We don't want to have more kids. Um, And it's hard to explain if you haven't been through it. Trying to get pregnant in itself is stressful enough. Infertility adds another layer to it. IVF is very controlled. And there's not much of it that you just feel completely out of control. There's nothing you can do. And so we knew we wanted to have another child after our twins were born. So we held on to them for a bit. He's only two now, like I said, and we just haven't decided how we want to move forward with our frozen embryos. While we don't believe they're children, they are important to us. Um, They're potential children. They're potential siblings to our kids. They're hope. And it's not something that you can just dispose of or donate without being completely certain that that's where your heart is. So while our plan is certainly to end up donating them for research, I can't do that until I'm emotionally ready to do it because I feel like it's something I would regret 
if I wasn't ready to. So it just leaves me in a place where I'm being forced to make a quick decision to make it, to spend more money on transporting embryos, going to a more expensive clinic and continuing to pay for them every year, which I would have had to do anyway. But the new clinic is significantly more expensive all because I'm not ready to make to make my own decision. You might not think of your embryos as children, but the state of Alabama does. And if you transport them and mm-hmm. something goes wrong in the transportation or there's, there's a problem with the freezing process, you will be liable or, or the person transporting them will be liable, the same as if a child had died as, as a consequence of, of, of negligence. So can you transport them? I can. Um, it is a risk. I think it's a small risk. We have found a third-party company, finally, who would agree to do it. And our clinic has agreed to release them. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a risk. If anything goes wrong, then we're criminally liable for it. You're crim- I could go to jail for moving Petri dishes of cells. Of your own embryos. And then there's, property, also, yes. there's also the question of... Um, neglect as well because if they're classed as children you could also potentially be legally responsible if you neglect them and what what constitutes neglect in this situation you know who knows if they haven't answered that they could they could constitute neglect as freezing them for eight years and because there is the practice here of donating embryos to other couples it's a concern of mine that the state could step in and take them and donate them to another family without our permission. They can step in and take our kids if they think we're neglecting them. So why couldn't they step in and take these embryos? It must be a very confusing, if not terrifying, time for people who've, who've had IVF in Alabama. It is. And we're fortunate enough that we're not in the middle of the process. I know women who, are, who have already spent the money, who have already gone through part of the process, and it is not easy on your body. It's, it's, it's dangerous. It's not something that's easy to go through. It's not something that people take lightly. So it's even more difficult, I feel like, for them. This is something that clearly is going to be discussed and debated over the days, weeks, months to come. We're all waiting to see how this plays out. But if you have fertility issues, time isn't on your side, is it? You know, if if you're trying to undergo fertility treatment. As someone who's gone through all of this... Is this a frightening time for, for women who want to get pregnant through IVF in the USA? Oh, I think very much. You know, I'm 44 now and just now finished having my last child. I never anticipated being quite this old, you know, when I when I decided to finish having children. And if there are women who are older than me who still haven't been able to have their first yet. And the longer they wait, the riskier it is on their bodies, um, the riskier it is to have a healthy egg. So I'm sure it's very frightening for them. They're probably anticipating losing that dream and just not being able to have children. That was Christia Rumbly, an IVF patient from Alabama. And Eric, what's your reaction to hearing that? Everything that she raised from um, you know moving the moving the embryos and the um, time not being on your side, these are all concerns, and rightly so. I mean, even. Even the idea of neglect is something that is um, um, I had not thought of, but but is is absolutely true. 
I think that the one thing that we're going to that that is really at risk is the embryos themselves and what is being transferred. According to the chief judge, he thinks that one embryo should be created at a time mm. and then one transferred. Then why would you need to do any PGD testing? You would never test for for defects of genetic defects to the embryos. And so you'd be transferring a, a, an embryo blindly. Yes. It would of, make no sense. And of course, that's generally just how I, that's not how, how IVF works. Uh, Eric, I mean, Christian mentioned uh, both Republicans and Democrats are trying to push bills that would protect IVF. Um, hopefully, there will be a, a way forward in all of this. But how is this as an issue playing as a feature of the presidential election later this year? Well, shockingly, uh, uh, President Trump came out uh, in favor of um, you know protecting IVF and and the rights, of course. President Biden is uh, pro-choice and, um, you know, in protecting uh, the right, those those rights for women to procreate and to create their families in their own ways. So it's going to be a definitely front and center as another personal rights issue in the election. Um, and I think, you know, certain states are going to have to make choices about how they're going to treat women in their states. Eric Rubel and Christia Rumbley there. Still to come on the programme, comedian, actor and author Andy Osho and her mum Charlotte discuss working together on her mum's memoir, The Jagged Path. And remember, you can enjoy Woman's Hour any hour of the day if you can't join us live at 10am during the week. All you need to do is subscribe to the daily podcast for free via BBC Sounds. Now, people in their early 20s are more likely to be out of work because of ill health than those in their early 40s. That's according to a report by the Resolution Foundation. The think tank says younger people with mental health problems can have their chances of a good education blighted and can end up out of work or going into low-paid jobs. Young women are particularly affected and are one and a half times more likely to experience poor mental health as young men. Well, Emma talked to Lindsay Judge, the research director at the Resolution Foundation, and began by asking her why younger people are more likely to be out of work. It's a, a really critical question and one that we speculate about in the report. Um, we're, we're economists, we're not health professionals. But I mean, I think there's a number of things that studies point to. For example, um, obviously, the rise of social media. Young people today have to face that. Young people of my generation, for example, weren't subject to cyberbullying. Um, there's an awful lot of pressure, of course, on young people today to perform at school and then in the workplace. But there's also potentially a positive reason, of course, which is we've seen a very welcome decline in stigma around mental health over the last um, few years, last couple of decades. And of course, young people perhaps are more likely to come forward and report mental health conditions today. However, regardless of why we see this rise in, in health conditions, the really important thing is it's having real world impacts in terms of people's economic prospects. And I suppose, you know, there's a message here that, that talks about you know, they're not just snowflakes, essentially, if I was to give this message a headline from Claire. Um, the reason, she says, the future is bleak. Uh, climate breakdown, war, political chaos, jobs, housing, NHS, on it goes. The reality is young people, every one of them carries it with them, regardless of education, social class and race. Some are managing it better than others. Many are struggling, my son being one. He's frequently paralysed by despair. As a result, he's not able to earn as much as he should and move along with his life. And he's on benefits. 
He's not a snowflake. He fights that every day. The young need to see our leaders, in quotation marks, really leading and taking huge necessary steps needed to avert further breakdown, misery. And currently we are racing towards disaster on so many fronts. That's a perspective from one of our listeners. Well, I mean, it's absolutely true that young people today haven't seen the kind of advances in, in incomes, in support from the state that perhaps a generation ago young people did. So I can understand your, your listeners' comment on that, that the future does look look bleak for many people. And of course, climate change is another important thing that causes existential angst all around. But again, it's, it's, it's definitely not a question of snowflakes. I mean, for example, in the report, we point to the fact that half a million young people today are in receipt of antidepressants significantly more than in the past. So they've obviously been diagnosed by a doctor. And the other um, point we we, we um, highlight is that um, talking about benefits, when we look at personal independence payment, which is the benefit awarded to those in ill health who, who are struggling with work, again, we can see the numbers of young people who are in receipt of that going up significantly in recent years. Although there are concerns about uh, whether you know antidepressants being, being given to, to those, although being given by a doctor, is the right course. And if that is a correct barometer, in itself. Well, absolutely. And one of the things we mentioned in the report very much is that um, this is first and foremost a, a health crisis. And so you'd expect the health service to be responding. But it's also an economic crisis. And we need to look for ways that people with mental health conditions can can still thrive in the workplace and in education. So we point to example for um, the need for more mental health support teams and, and more sort of sensitive teaching in schools and critically in further education colleges where a lot of young people with mental health conditions will end up. And also we need employers to kind of step up and in particular we need them to step up in the world in the sectors where lots of young people work for example in retail and hospitality. But is there not also this much bigger thing I don't know if this comes up this bigger picture which is what can work get you if you're a young person you know what what what, where where are you able to fit in are you able to buy your own home are you able to certainly even to rent securely that there's some of those issues about what you can even get for working hard. Yeah, and I think a really critical finding in the report is that um, young people with mental health conditions who have a degree are much more likely to be in work and flourishing than young people who don't have a degree. And I think that's really important, that we mustn't overlook the fact that there are a group of people in society, young people in society, with mental health conditions whose maybe education has been blighted by their health and who really have very few options. Those who have a university track have a, a kind of you know, an easier kind of ride into early adulthood. But those who aren't in that kind of position are are really disadvantaged. Lindsay Judge speaking to Emma there. Now, last July, comedian, actor and author Andy Osho told us about her second novel, Tough Crowd. During the interview, Andy revealed she was also editing her mother's memoirs, saying the book was being written as a legacy for her three children. It details the story of a young girl's journey from an idyllic life in rural 1940s Nigeria through the heartbreak of losing her parents, tumultuous years with uncaring guardians, an abusive marriage which ended in betrayal, to full-time nursing and raising her three children in the UK and finally finding hope and happiness. Charlotte Osho has now published her book, The Jagged Path, and spoke to Emma along with editor and daughter Andy. Emma asked Andy how the mother-daughter project actually worked out. It didn't even occur to me that it would be a thing because I know obviously in some relationships it would be difficult for, you know, mother and daughter to be working together and there'd be a bit of, you know, personal, interpersonal history <laughs> coming into the into the process. But it was really straightforward. And then I think I think mum, you said, well, I just did what you told me to do. 
<laughs> and that made it much easier. Is that how it goes generally with Andy? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's easy going really. So there's no problem working with Andy. So she has been very, very helpful all along the way. She's done a sterling job. Oh, thanks, babes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Charlotte, why did you want to write your story down? What, why was it important? It's important to me, very important to leave it as a legacy for my loved ones. And uh, having my story down, whenever I share it with Andy, she always encouraged me, you, you should write a book, you should put it down, write your story down. Until I went to a retirement fellowship a few years ago, and we had a speaker there who shared her story. She has just published her life story. And she encouraged all of us, everyone, to write our uh, life story. And she said, if I can do it, anyone can do it. So from that time onward, I started to look into how I can actually write my own story. So that's how it all started, really. You knew, I'm so sure, some of the stories, Andy, but, but just tell us a bit about what, what perhaps you, you didn't get from it and, and what you've learned, maybe. I mean, so much. A lot of people, either they don't know their older relatives or parents' stories or they just know fragments and then they f- maybe fill in the rest. So, you know, reading her story, I found out so much more about what life was like growing up in Nigeria. I mean, you know, the beginning chapter just paints this almost idyllic, you know, vision of quite a sort of difficult sort of environment, you know, of like no electricity, no running water, no bathroom, grow, you know, growing what you eat, foraging, that type of thing. But because it was what mum knew, you know, there wasn't anything to compare it to Mm. and it was kind of idyllic. So, you know, even just learning what that was like and then, moving forward like understanding her relationship with my dad which was abusive and so that was something that she had protected us and only given us little fragments when she felt we were old enough so it was really profound to read that and know that she had been so strong and not given any inkling to us as kids that that was what was going on I remember I was about like 10 or something like that I said to my mum do you ever cry? Because I was just like, it just blew my mind. I'd never seen her upset. Well, of course, she probably did. She did. I mean, she says in the book she did, but she never, we never, ever saw that. Was that was that hard to write down, that part of your life, Charlotte? Yes, very difficult to write down. It brought uh, back a lot of emotions, really. Thinking back, reflecting back on those uh, difficult times, challenging times. When I was with Joseph, I I cried quite a lot, but uh, the children didn't see me cry. But it was like things he was doing, I would think, why was he doing this to me? I felt really, really awful and really heartbroken and couldn't explain why. I was trying to be a good person, a good wife, a good mother, and uh, still it wasn't good enough for him. So he did all he could to really bring me down in whatever way he found necessary or fitting for him to do yes so it was very difficult and 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 you also then were single parenting 
after you were in this situation and you, you found yourself to, to be alone and be able to do that, which must have also in a you know, still a relatively new country must have been very tough at times. Yes, yes. It was very tough, but I always kind of not looking on my problem, what was going on, but looking how I can get things better, do things better, be uh, sufficient uh, to provide for my family, for myself, have a roof over our heads and food on the table. That was my focus, that I didn't let anything distract me. And to be able to keep my job, I had a very good job, which I really love. All those things kept me going, my children particularly, kept me going, that I couldn't let them down. Well, I'm sure there's absolutely nothing that's coming across here about your mum letting you down in any way and, and working as a nurse for, for over 40 years in the NHS. Yes, yes, it was over 40 years. That's right. It's incredible. And, and for you, I suppose, when you've now sort of start to put these things together, uh, Andy, it must give you quite a different sense of the story at the beginning for your mum and, and where she is now. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that mum says is one of the reasons for writing this book also is to um, sort of inspire others who may go through difficult times. And through it, you can really see how she used the adversity to build this kind of fortitude and this sort of resilience to be able to, to get through life. Because there would have also been you know, prejudice as well that you, you were encountering and, and, and dealing with. Yeah, I mean, gosh, reading about that as well, about what, what things were like just first arriving in the UK. I mean, it's kind of funny. There's some stuff that's funny, you know, just encountering some British foods for the first time, like cheese. That just had me... Because the thing is, Emma, we would be chatting and I'd be going through a chapter. There's a big smile on your mum's face. Yeah. And, and I'd say, oh, tell me a bit more about like food when you first arrived. And she's not written this down. She's like, oh gosh, when I tried cheese for the first time, it was awful. Or, you know, spaghetti, it looks like worms. I'm like, mum, why isn't this in the book? So this is where I got you involved. You teased it like, out. Yeah, it's like sort of Wait, are you, primming those stories. Are you, are you into cheese yet? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't expect to ask that. <laughs> yes, I am now, but not a, bi- not a big cheese eater. So I just... That's all right. That's, a, that's not a requirement of, of living in yeah, the UK. Yeah, but, I think gradually... I the entry. No, to get <laughs> your citizenship. Like yeah. How are you with camembert? <laughs> yeah, oh no, not camembert. No, no, go start no. with cheddar. Come on. Well, yeah, all right, yeah. mild My... stuff, and then slowly gradual. But you still don't like Stilton or anything? No, like that, I don't. No, I doesn't don't like the strong ones. <laughs> But is, it's all important stuff. It's all in the book. Yeah, you've got to have that laugh though as well. At oh the same yeah, hundred percent. But that's I think that's mum as well. Is that like she doesn't dwell in the serious. She but there's, that gives her like there's a depth to her her spirit, her character because she's been through so much. But she's able to like look on the bright side and laugh about things. And you know when we're down, like say inspiring words rather than sort of dwell on the negative. Mm-hmm. And. And just, just, just another, if you don't mind me, but, but the decision by your mum to, to protect you from mm-hmm. a lot of that reality, do you, do you think that was the right one? Do you agree with that? Because it's interesting when you look back on something and then have more knowledge. I kind of had my dad on a pedestal because I could create an imaginary one because mm. I was seven when he left. So I Im- created an imaginary version of him that was on this pedestal, whereas because she stayed and I was seeing her day to day, she became the challenge in my life kind of thing. And it's only through hearing her story and reflecting back on my relationship with my dad and seeing how my brothers relate to my dad, that I've been like, oh, <laughs> actually not such a great guy after all. And that's really sort of recalibrated my my experience of him. 
Charlotte, how have the rest of the family reacted? Have they have they all read it? Uh, no, not yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They know what's yeah. Going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They all kind of know the gist of the story and how it's going. So they're really, really excited about it and looking forward to reading it. How wonderful. That was Charlotte and Andy Osho. That's all from me for today. Do join Emma on Monday when she'll be speaking to the Irish singer, songwriter and musician CMAT, fresh from the Brit Awards, where she's nominated for Best International Artist. Go CMAT.